I think to just cede this critical national security component to the free market is totally ignoring the reality of the situation. It is the week of February 7th, and welcome to episode 117 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Andy Kaiser, principal at Navigators Global. Sarah Stewart, Executive Director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Scott Coulinane, Executive Director of the U.S.-Europe Alliance, and myself, Lester Munson, a Senior Fellow at NSI and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Folks, in the past 30 years, the United States' share of the computer chip market has gone from 37% to 12%. Today, we have a chip supply chain crisis. I believe Ford Motor Company announced today they're shutting down a bunch of factories for a while because there aren't enough computer chips. This crisis is driving up the cost of cars. It's delaying the delivery of appliances and other things. Both Congress and President Biden are working on programs and incentives to increase American manufacturing of computer chips. Sarah, this crisis could get worse. And really, I can't think of anyone, anything worse than someone getting their Ford Bronco later than they thought. Uh, but this this could be uh, getting worse and be a threat to our way of life, uh, returning to a serious tone. Is it possible for the United States realistically to address the situation quickly? Thanks, Les. I think that the short answer is no. Um, I think that there's a lot that's being done by the private sector and by the government to try and quickly ramp up production. But we have seen such a precipitous decline in production capacity, or at least the U.S.'s share of global capacity over time, that, and it's a, such a capital intensive process that you can't really get new production up and running very quickly. It does, it does take a, a, a bit of time. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I think that we need to be worried about this uh, for, for reasons more than just the fact that, you know, cars are, are delayed and we're seeing some shuttering of, of production. Um, there is a real uh, long-term strategic concern that I know we're going to get into, um, but this shortage has, has really highlighted that we don't have control over our access to chips and chips are needed for virtually everything that we are doing in modern day life. The Commerce Department did a report on the global shortage and it pulled, uh, you know, it pulled U.S. producers. And the single biggest takeaway from that report that came out last week is that we need more production capacity on U.S. soil. So I think that, you know, in the short term, it's going to be difficult to see how we're going to quickly address this. I think we are going to see this abate, but This has highlighted the fact that we've got to get our ducks in a row because a larger uh, crisis could come down the pike, whether geopolitical or weather related or pandemic related, and we've got to be prepared. Andy, let's talk about Taiwan. Uh, A lot of the chips that we do rely on come from Taiwan these days. Of course, Uh, China is totally unprovoked, threatening to invade Taiwan. Uh, They've been doing this for years. The the rhetoric around it and the pacing around it seems to be picking up lately. So 
talk us through this. The computer chips are a strategic um, asset, a strategic and valuable resource, if you will. Does this crisis change the way we think about Taiwan? We, we already have a pretty close relationship with Taiwan. We, we have a law, the Taiwan Relations Act, that governs what the U.S. does with that island nation, even though we don't officially diplomatically recognize them. We take a number of other steps to support them. Uh, does this computer chip crisis change the nature of that relationship? I think it raises the level of importance and it's something, uh, it's certainly a factor uh, in the relationship. So I, I totally agree with Sarah. I mean, chips are, uh, you know, a, a key impo- component to our economic and our national security. Um, you know, you can't fly the F-35 in the sky or, you know, the iPhone in your pocket doesn't work without uh, that stable supply of, of chips. And like you said, less, I think uh, 85% of the world's high-end semiconductors are, are manufactured in Asia. Most of those in Taiwan, um, the rest, uh, you know, predominantly in South Korea, some production we're seeing come online in China. I've written a couple of papers about this uh, for folks who are having trouble sleeping at night. They can, they can pull one up. Um, and, you know, you hear a lot about everything is the new oil. Um, you know, N95 masks, I think, are the new oil uh, recently. But this is one where I think, no kidding aside, we, we have to get right. We have to take seriously. You mentioned a very simple uh, supply chain disruption with pretty low end, actually, chips uh, that the auto industry is experiencing. Now, imagine if, like you said, China decided to cross the Taiwan Strait or to take some maybe some strike against those facilities uh, or some other sabotage uh, method, obviously that would have a huge global uh, disruption to the economy, to the, the national security posture. And it's very difficult to, to turn online. Um, this is why I think you're seeing this intense global uh, effort to uh, for countries to secure their own supply chain. You're seeing you know, perhaps uh, investments in, in Europe and huge investments in South Korea. The South Koreans have, uh, have put more, more resources per capita by far on the table uh, to secure that industry. And you're seeing, you're seeing others take a look at it. Um, you know, we certainly don't want to be beholden to any one country for such a critical component, let alone literally our, you know, foremost geopolitical adversary on the planet. So it's, it's, a, it's you know, an important factor in the Taiwan cross-strait relations. Uh, some folks think, um, you know, it might make China more likely to, to make a move on Taiwan. Other folks think it makes them less likely uh, because of uh, that position that the Taiwanese have and, you know, potentially maybe they um, sabotage their own uh, industry ahead of that uh, action, or maybe the Americans do, or some other compromise therein that would pr- uh, prevent the Chinese uh, from from taking that critical sort of you know global um, component to to security. Uh, but I think either way, all of us can agree it's going to be an important factor in that relationship going forward, and it's one the rest of the world is is taking a hard look at. Scott, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. Uh, of course, you're you're phoning in from Berlin. Tell us what it looks like in Europe. My understanding is Europe's looking at a similar situation in terms of computer chips. How how real is this problem where you are? Yes, thank you. Um, you know, first to say for Europe um, broadly, they're facing 
the same concerns and challenges uh, we are uh, in the U.S. Uh, this issue of domestic demand consumption far outpacing whatever domestic uh, production could ever hope to meet. Um, it's, and it's also a very similar concern about being out innovative and certainly about being outproduced. And just as the U.S. has seen its relative slice of the manufacturing pie of semiconductors shrink over the last 25 or 30 years, the same thing has also happened in Europe. Now, last year, the EU Commission, the executive branch, the executive body of the European Union, put forward uh, the concept of a European CHIPS Act. And we're still waiting for all the details on it, and we should maybe even be getting some more final decisions this month on it. But we know it will include uh, billions of euros uh, to fund new research, uh, a relaxation of state aid rules, um, and, and a host of measures to uh, promote funds that will lead to what is hoped the building of at least several, perhaps as many as four new fabrication plants around Europe. Uh, roughly, uh, the possible outcome of this would be a tripling of, of production of semiconductors inside the EU in the next eight to 10 years if they're very successful. And the thing to point out here uh, on the European end is that this is really part of a larger conversation that's happening around sovereignty and around technological sovereignty. And if you remember back to the early days of the pandemic, um, you know, two, two-ish years ago, uh, we had this rush for medical supplies. We had some examples of, of hoarding, uh, concern of supply chains for masks or, or PPE. Uh, we certainly saw that coming from Asia, from China. Um, and certainly from the European perspective, they also um, felt that some sharp elbows were thrown by, by the U.S. and thrown by, by the Trump administration, uh, particularly around uh, one company here in Germany called CureVac um, that at the time had some technology around uh, vaccine production and vaccine research. Um, and uh, the White House allegedly, as reported in the media, offered a, a large sum of money to that company to have exclusive rights uh, to the vaccines they produced. Um, and that was seen as a somewhat um, unfriendly act um, by a number of European, uh, European governments. So in this CHIPS Act, um, European CHIPS Act, there's certainly a, a desire um, to, to build up some domestic capacity and to guard against uh, potential pressure that might come from adversaries like China. But there's also a subtext there that it might not just be um, about China, but it might also be about the U.S. Um, in some circumstances. So uh, the European CHIPS Act, I think, reflects um, an ongoing conversation within Europe um, that's not, not finalized yet, where, where Europe is trying to find their way uh, and not entirely clear, there's not an entire consensus um, about where exactly Europe should fall uh, in the current geopolitical landscape. Sarah, Andy, it, it sounds not unlike what's going on in Congress, where 
We've got a bill in the, in the Senate and a bill in the House, each of which would uh, basically subsidize American computer chip production. But the two bodies are kind of have very different approaches. There's a bunch of other issues attached to those bills. What are your thoughts about this kind of subsidy idea from from Capitol Hill. Is that practical? Is it workable? Is it going to be responsive enough to meet the moment right now? Well, I can I can kick us off. I think we are taking a little foray into industrial policy here in 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 trying to fund the CHIPS Act. Uh, I think it's actually pretty critical that we do this. Um, we have been woefully behind where other countries have been when it comes to not just direct subsidies, but also uh, all sorts of other types of government incentives. So the the playing field is not level. So that's one issue. Um, A second issue is we need to make sure that we bring some productive capacity back home that wouldn't necessarily be the first choice of private companies, but we need here for a range of national security issues. So my view is I I strongly support Congress moving forward with this. However, I do have a couple of caveats. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think we've got to be really careful at the same time as we are expeditious. I think that if we are going to put out this funding, we're going to have private companies, both foreign domestic applying for this funding, We need to make sure that we are looking at it through a strategic lens and that we are not going to be giving money, for example, to companies that are also receiving subsidies for investments that they've made in China or for companies that are engaged in, uh, you know, very specific uh, research or, or or technology licensing with foreign adversaries, because then that's throwing U.S. taxpayers basically many, you know, and letting it slip out the back door. So I think we need to be taking this step, but we also need to be strategic in the way that we're doing it. Andy, interested to know uh, what you think of this. And, and for example, Uh, I'm thinking of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which is not at all impressed by Congress wanting to subsidize an industry, even one uh, that may uh, be in need of it at the moment, thinking that it'll warp the market and will will result in a lot of misspent money and perhaps a little bit of rent-seeking type corruption. Uh, What are your thoughts? You're a good good kind of free market Republican. What, What are we doing here? Yeah, I am. And I think, you know, there's plenty to quibble about in what Congress is doing. Uh, so let's set aside, that aside for a minute, but just talk about the, the, the issue and the strategy. I think to just cede this critical national security component to the, to the free market is totally ignoring the reality of the situation. So China is the world's second largest economy, uh, perhaps soon to be first. They do not operate in a free market. They distort the market. They provide massive state subsidies. They conduct state-backed espionage to steal trade secrets and hand that to those companies that are competing in the private sector that is not doing that. They provide guaranteed market share to that second biggest economy in the world for their national champions domestically. They provide endless lines of credit 
So the idea that that Intel could just store or Qualcomm or anyone could just compete in the open market and go get them and the, the best uh, you know, product will carry the day is just totally naive in this situation. So I think the issue, and this is why I think you see this broad bipartisan agreement, which is uh, maybe most of your listeners may have noticed is, is kind of hard to pull off these days uh, in Washington. And so I think there, there is this consensus that this is a critical national industry that um, we, we have to ensure uh, not just that our geopolitical adversaries are, uh, are not carrying the day on this uh, component and forcing us to rely on them. Obviously, the, the COVID situation brought that issue to the forefront on, on the, you know, the, what a horrible position we're in if we have to rely on China for, for critical goods. Um, but it's, it's really just taking care of ourselves uh, also. So I think the issue is, you know, again, a, a consensus issue here in Washington. And the prospects for the bill, um, I'll give a, a second uh, answer for. So um, we're now in, oh, I think three or four uh, chamber passed provisions, so House or Senate, that have passed a $52 billion domestic uh, subsidy for the semiconductor industry here in the United States that uh, was signed into law. The authorization for that funding was signed into law a couple of years ago in in the National Defense Authorization Act uh, that got, you know, 400 votes or something in the house, big overwhelming numbers. So that, that uh, concept is, is enjoys strong uh, bipartisan support. The actual dollars for that is to can really confuse people and authorization is not real money. There's an appropriation process. Uh, Lester might know something about. Um, and so the real money hasn't shown up yet is, is the, the short answer. And so Congress is grappling with how do we actually move this uh, into into real dollars, um, and so that provision, the fifty two billion dollars, has shown up in uh, a House passed uh, bill as of last week. That I agree with the Wall Street Journal is larded up with all kinds of other unrelated things. I think it's you know something like a two thousand bill and a two thousand page bill, and I think it mentions the word China two or three or four times. Um, so clearly. A lot of members are adding on their own priorities to this Christmas tree or the train that was leaving the station. Uh, but in the Senate, that uh, that bill looked a little different, was enjoyed more bipartisan support, about, I think, a third or, you know, between a third and a half of the Republican uh, conference in the Senate uh, ended up voting for that legislation. So I think that the, the long answer to your question is it enjoys bipartisan support. And I think if you're reading the tea leaves, is likely to be included in, in one of the trains that leaves uh, the station from Capitol Hill in 2022 this year. Andy, I am constantly amazed that people don't understand that every dollar the government spends has to be both appropriated and authorized. I mean, it's just obvious that that is the basic functionality of, you know, our community life together. Why, why is this so complicated for people? It's really, uh, I was surprised every time. Scott, do you have anything you want to add on our, our computer chip discussion? Yeah, I think an important point here, and I fully agree with everything uh, Andy and Sarah said, um, you know, as we get back into sort of industrial policy, uh, it obviously does have um, a warping effect on the market. And we do want to make sure that we uh, can compete and innovate, uh, but also guard against China. And one of the 
you know, possibilities here um, that we want to be careful to guard against is that in trying to guard against China, we don't get into an unintended um, you know, economic tiff um, with, with, our, with our European allies. And I think the example that's maybe not exactly right, but certainly comes to my mind um, is the Airbus-Boeing dispute. Um, where both Europe and the U.S. have something of a national champion, and there are allegations of illegal state subsidies and state aid, and 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 the uh, controversy and the litigation goes on and drags on for years and years and years and becomes sort of a perpetual irritant, at least um, in the relationship and possibly a hindrance to us working together in other ways. And so I just want to highlight uh, that last September, um, we had the first meeting of the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council, um, which is perhaps, uh, in transatlantic terms, one of the biggest achievements uh, of Biden's first year um, in office. And one of the subgroups, one of the working groups of that council is dedicated to semiconductors. And, uh, you know, it has, hasn't produced results yet. But hopefully, as that process goes forward, we can work together um, to deconflict or at least have some arrangement or understanding about investment between the U.S. Um, and our European allies and also cooperate on things like, like export control or investment screening um, to make sure that uh, you know, this, all this money that we invest um, you know, really does not, doesn't get stolen or doesn't get uh, you know, given or sold to China through some roundabout means. And there's a whole ecosystem um, I think goes along with improving our security. It's not just the dollars. Um, and so I think uh, that's a really important um, thing to be aware of that we're, it's not just the U.S. Uh, and China, but uh, ideally the U.S. and New York cooperating together with our other partners like Japan and Taiwan to really create uh, a more sustainable and secure supply chain for all of us. Well said. All right, let's uh, let's flex to our second topic, which is uh, North Korea. Uh, we haven't talked about North Korea in a while. I think they missed us uh, because last month uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or the DPRK, or North Korea, launched seven missiles, which may be an all-time record for them in one month. Uh, missile tests. Uh, some of them perhaps ballistic missiles that may be capable of reaching uh, Guam, which of course is of concern to U.S. national security. Um, Scott, there's a, there's an obvious kind of contrast here between the way the Trump administration handled North Korea and the way the, the Biden administration is handling North Korea. Can you talk uh, for our listeners about what exactly the Biden administration has been doing vis-a-vis the threat from North Korea for the past year? I think the first thing to mention um Certainly, it's probably not unique to this, but I think in the general way the Biden administration has approached these questions um, is not to do things the way Trump did them. And so they have very clearly avoided um, the fire and fury rhetoric, threats, uh, inflammatory language. We have not seen that. And likewise, we also haven't seen um, offers of bilateral meetings or a lot of inducements. The State Department has said that the U.S. Uh, is willing to meet with North Korea without preconditions. And in the aftermath of these recent uh, seven missile launches over the last month, 
uh, the Biden administration did go ahead and sanction uh, uh, five North Korean individuals outside North Korea who were involved uh, in, in trying to procure material and technology for the missile program. Um, you know, beyond that, it, it has, it's been a little bit of a slow show. Uh, the administration did try to raise this issue at the uh, UN Security Council. Unfortunately and unsurprisingly, that was blocked by Russia and China. And I think just more broadly, um, over this past year, the administration has been busy uh, with withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, and now with a military crisis with, with Russia. Uh, and I think uh, with a lot of other pressing uh, priorities and crises, and without much prospect um, for diplomacy with North Korea, um, we've really seen um, this particular portfolio fall pretty far down the priority list. Uh, Andy, have have things changed in the past 13 months with North Korea? Are they more of a threat than they were during the Trump administration? Um, well, I think they have. They seem to have greater access to resources than they had. So one of the, the I, I agree with Scott, the fire and fury conversation made a lot of folks nervous, uh, particularly considering the irrational, perhaps, country we were dealing with that was uh, nuclear armed. Um, but one thing they did that I, I, I do think was effective is they did initiate these sort of pretty intense sanctions. And as, uh, as a result, um, when the negotiations began, those sanctions were not lessened in any way. They um, they remained and they remain in place, um, and that really did squeeze the regime, and, and I think gave them fewer and fewer options. You know, uh, uh, developing ballistic missiles and sophisticated nuclear weapons. It turns out it's very expensive, um, but the the regime is uh, is, is uh, resilient as uh, they have shown over time and have found. Uh, interesting access to new funds in, in areas like uh, crypto uh, hacking. And so they, you know, have essentially state-sponsored uh, hacking teams that go out and, uh, uh, you know, find cash wherever they can. That famously, you know, in the, in the 2000s, the regime was literally selling counterfeit dollars uh, to help fund its, its activities, stealing fish, I mean, all kinds of bizarre things to, you know, scrape together enough money to have a, a nuclear program. And now that's taken a, a different turn and they've built on their cyber sophistication, which, you know, sometimes we forget almost took down a, you know, major uh, international conglomerate in, in Sony in the, the hack uh, following the really bad movie that they were honked off about um, a few years ago. And they've, you know, built on those capabilities and decided it's a nice source of funding for their nefarious activities, um, including their missile program. So they've, they've taken that and they've uh, added this new access to resources through crypto means and are um, turning it uh, kind of against us and against, against the world. It's given them a little new sense on life, you know, without getting these uh, sanctions the sanction relief that they had sought previously. Sarah, I'm interested in your perspective, if you're willing to kind of compare and contrast here, uh, the Biden approach, perhaps of strategic indifference versus the uh, Trump approach, which I'm going to label 
bombastic embrace. Uh, does it matter which approach we take? Is one better than the other? What are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure that it matters. I mean, the Biden, the Biden approach and the Trump approach uh, and and the Obama approach and, you know, many other presidents have all had different approaches. And, um, you know, we we haven't quite been able to land any, you know, real outcomes. Um, I think it's, it's important that we don't take our foot off the gas. It's important that, you know, we continue to keep the pressure up, not just as the U S but, you know, along with Japan and with, with South Korea, it's important that we are, you know, as hard as North Korea is working to, you know, uh, increase its, it's uh, it's cyber prowess and work, you know, in these anonymous crypto markets, we need to be on top of that. We need to be on top of our adversaries that are likely funding them. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that we have one real clear path that's greater than the other. Certainly, you know, the Trump administration tried, I think, a very... Um, something that no one else had tried. And yet we came to basically the same place <laughs> as we were in. So, uh, you know, I, I think I think we need to look at what is North Korea's objectives here. Is this really just, please don't ignore us. We're strong and we're mighty, um, but we're not really going to take this to the next level then, you know, I think that probably some combination of what we're already doing makes sense. If we feel like it's going in a different direction, then maybe we need a fresh approach. Um, but at the moment, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that any of the approaches have really changed the trajectory in any meaningful way. Yeah, Sarah, for what it's worth, I totally agree with you. I think the only thing we should be doing is laying responsibility for Pyongyang's behavior on China. There's this kind of hocus pocus explanation that uh, the leadership of North Korean leadership of China don't get along and there's differences and China can't control Kim Jong-un and things like that. It's total malarkey. Uh, North Korea is the puppet of China. We should treat it as such. We should be making no effort to curtail their, curtail their behavior and should be putting the onus completely on Beijing for every single thing that North Korea does. If we keep doing that on a regular basis and get others to join us, which they will, uh, then we could really, that's the thing that might actually change the dynamic, it seems to me. Okay, I know we just touched on uh, North Korean missiles relatively briefly, but uh, let's go to our third component here, the stories that we're following that may not be on the front page. Andy, let's go to you first. Sure. So as we're uh, all bombarded with uh, Chinese Com- Communist Party uh, leadership propaganda through the Olympics, which are exciting to watch our athletes, of course, um, going on now, I was reminded uh, that this is also the year of the 60th anniversary of China's invasion of India back in 1962. So one thing the CCP loves to tout is that they, they're you know benign, they've never invaded their neighbors, please trust us, uh, this is, we're great. Well, that's actually wrong. Um, back again in 1962, they they aggressively invaded India. Um, they uh, referred to it at the time and still to this day 
as a self-defense counterattack, which I find interesting. And I feel like my eight-year-old daughter is going to use that the next time she whacks my five-year-old daughter in the head, that it was self-defense counterattack. Um, but it's interesting. And of course, there was the China-India uh, border skirmish uh, last year and the year prior where, you know, a couple of dozen people were killed. So the, you know, don't buy the CCP propaganda lines, uh, folks, including what, you, what you're hearing at the Olympics. And then this idea that they've never invaded their neighbors and they're just, you know, benign. We should all just say thank you for existing. Scott. So I'm looking at, at Russia, but but not for the obvious reason. And uh, a few days ago, uh, Russia uh, shut down and kicked out uh, Deutsche Welle, the German public broadcaster from Moscow, and enforced out the forced closure of their Moscow bureau. And, and that really stuck out to me and, and reminded me of um, of the pressure. Uh, journalists are in Russia. And it's not just DW. Um, It's also uh, a great amount of pressure that's being applied to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty uh, in Russia. Uh, Legal constraints being put on journalists and millions of dollars in fines that are being put against uh, RFRL in Russia. And I know at the moment we're all focusing on uh, on the crisis on the border, military aggression against Ukraine. But uh, this effort uh, to close down or seek to close down access to free information and accurate information for the Russian people is something that is going to be a problem in the long term. And I know at the moment we're all thinking about Russia and military aggression, um, but whenever this crisis passes, uh, we will have to deal with how do we communicate and how do we get accurate information to the people of Russia uh, for whenever we are, are able to move past uh, Putinism, um, you know, and, and Putin's system. Right. Sarah. So I am I am following an issue that uh, has to do with forced labor. So um, the U.S. Trade Representative has recently announced that they will be um, preparing a forced labor strategy. Um, and I think that this is really important, obviously, for a number of different reasons, because, you know, they're, they're trying to combat, you know, the, the issue of forced labor and supply chains. It's tied to human trafficking. It's tied to child labor. It's chi- tied to all sorts of other illicit practices, arms trafficking, drugs trafficking, wildlife trafficking. So there is no shortage of of bad behaviors here. I think why this is really exciting to me is because all of these things are being traded. And so having the U.S. trade representative jumping in on this and bringing its resources to bear and its diplomacy and using existing platforms like the EUTTC that Scott mentioned earlier, like the USMCA, the new uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada-NAFTA update, um, and and many other fora, the World Trade Organization, this is coming up uh, through a U.S. proposal in the fisheries subsidies negotiations. So this is really exciting. They're just getting going uh, with this and inviting public input. Uh, and I, I, I can't wait to see where this goes, but we've, we've got to take more ownership of this issue in the U.S. And so I'm really glad to see that we're doing that. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, so I am tracking the battle of basketball big men. Uh, Enos Cantor Freedom 
who plays for the Boston Celtics versus Yao Ming, uh, who used to play for the Houston Rockets and who is Chinese. Uh, if you think in basketball terms, Yao Ming, one of the all-time greats, uh, would wipe the floor with Enos Cantor on almost any day, might still be able to, just a terrific player. Enos, while um, he is, of course, a very good basketball player, nowhere near as good as Yao Ming. But in the issue of human rights, uh, Enos Cantor has it all over Yao Ming. Enos Cantor has been outspoken on issues in his home country of Turkey. He's very outspoken on what's going on in China, particularly now while the Olympics are in Beijing. Uh, and Yao Ming, unfortunately, has taken the posture of just defending the Chinese government. So, uh, on the big issues that matter, Enos Cantor, a much better example of what a pivot can do uh, than Yao Ming, who, although uh, in basketball terms, may have been the better player. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Cesar Mayor for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Thank you.